Well, good morning. Good morning. Um, next week, we are going to take a break uh, from Luke for about four weeks to talk about who we are in the gospel and who we are as a church and then where we're headed over this next year. Um, and I'm really excited about the vision I think that God has for us as a church. Um, over the past uh, year, year and a half, we've kind of introduced this idea of our gospel identity, who we are in Christ. We talked about how we are missionaries, how we are worshipers, how we're servants, how we're a family, and um, how we are learners. That's our gospel identity, or we're disciples. Uh, if you're not familiar with our idea of learners. Uh, and part of what we've learned over the past year is that it's really hard to take our identity without some guidance and just in how, and thinking through how we live that out every day. Um, and so what we are going to be talking about over the next few weeks is the idea of rhythms. Uh, we all have rhythms that we're in. Now, some of your rhythms sound like, like they're offbeat. Uh, and some of your rhythms, maybe some of you can't keep rhythms, but uh, uh, we all have rhythms, even if it's a rhythm of chaos. Uh, we all have rhythms. And uh, particularly uh, the rhythms of blessing, communication, um, my goodness, recreation, work, and, um, wow, and eating, there we go, five rhythms. Um, I should have this memorized by now, but that's all right. Uh, so we're, we're going to talk through how do we live out our gospel identity as learners, as missionaries, as worshipers, as servants, as a family, in the everyday rhythms of life, particularly these five rhythms of eating, communicating, recreation, working, and blessing. There we go. Uh, so we're going to talk through that, and, and we're going to talk about what, how does that then impact us as a community, as, as a body of believers, and how, how are we going to encourage each other to live out um, this identity, and how are we going to hold each other accountable, how are we going to, uh, again, encourage each other, how are we going to push each other, how are we going to covenant together, for example, to be missionaries at our workplace, how are we going to encourage each other to exemplify our gospel identity as a family uh, to our biological family or to our neighbors? How are we going to do that? Um, because I, I'm convinced that if we understand our identity and then we live out our identity, then we will see the kingdom of God tangibly around us. But until Christians learn their identity and learn how to live out their identity, then the kingdom is virtually invisible, particularly to those without any kind of faith. Um, so, I want to encourage us uh, to look forward to the next four weeks uh, as we do that, and then we'll jump back into Luke, and we'll be right about the crucifixion at, uh, at Christmas time uh, in Luke, so that should be good timing on that one. But... Uh, uh, for now, we're going to take a look at this, and how does, again, how does that affect our gatherings, our communities, all those things? So, um, anyways, 
Looking forward to that. Hope you guys are as well. Let's jump into Luke chapter 17 this morning. Luke chapter 17. Here's the way today's going to roll. We're going to work through 17 like we would in through virtually any other passage. Uh, and then um, we'll have a time of response, uh, a time of singing, to, a time to respond to the word. And, uh, and then we will uh, participate in communion together, remembering the death of our Savior. Uh, and then uh, we'll be dismissed sometime after that. But I want to uh, just give you a heads up where we're going. So Luke chapter 17. Let's think about this with me for just a second. In one sense, in life, we have a certainty about the future. In another sense, we have an uncertainty when it comes to the future. Let me tell you what what I'm thinking here. We act as though we're certain about the future oftentimes when it comes to our life. Specifically as in just us simply living. Most of us live as though we are certain we will be alive tomorrow. We live with a a nearsightedness that I'm breathing right now, so therefore I must conclude that I will be alive tomorrow. Uh, Or there is no, you know, people running around our neighborhoods with guns and so on and so forth, so I must, that must be uh, uh, indicative that I will be alive tomorrow. Or that maybe our kids will be here tomorrow. On the other hand, we live with an uncertainty in maybe other areas of our life, like, will my job be here tomorrow? I wonder what's going to happen to Christianity in our country tomorrow. And there's an uncertainty in some of those things. There is a certain uncertainty about the future events of our lives. I think this can be discouraging sometimes. It can be paralyzing. But it can also be revealing of what you put your trust in as well. It can be indicative of where you find your security for the future of your life. Maybe you find it in the government. Maybe you find it in your job. Maybe you find it in your ability to control events. Maybe you find it in um, the past and that everything has seemed to work out for me so far, so that must mean it's going to continue the same pattern tomorrow. But one thing we can know for sure about the future is what Jesus has prophesied for us to know. And you go, yeah, got that, I know. And yet, we live as though we don't know. Yet we live as though we don't believe that Christ's prophecy of the future will come to pass. And so last week, we talked about how to live as followers of Jesus, particularly living with the future in view. And yet, Oftentimes, we live as though the future's in view, but there's an uncertainty to that future. 
Maybe we don't even know what that future is. Maybe we don't know what the words of Christ have prophesied about the future. In this passage, I think we see Christ's prophecy was concerning two things. One, His personal fate, and then His fate concerning the rest of the world. Now that's pretty inclusive. I don't think Jesus is just, I mean, think about bigger picture even beyond this passage. But even in this passage, he's talking about himself and everything else in existence outside of the person of God. The creation. And he speaks concerning those things. This we can trust. I really hope you believe that. And you go, and and again, I know, you're saying, Matt, I believe that. I believe that God, or Jesus, what He said is true. And yet, my question is, again, if we were to look at the recording that is your life for the past week, would it say that? Would it say two things? One, that I'm living with the future in view, and that I believe that the future in view, as defined and described by Jesus Christ, is a certain reality. Does it say that? Last week we talked about, again, living with the future in view. We talked about how this is a mark of wisdom. How this is a mark of a follower of Jesus. This is not an option. This is not, uh, well, you know, I'm just going to kind of live for today and not think about that. No, it's not an option. This is something that marks a follower. And again, living with the future in view is more than just planning your retirement or setting up a good mutual fund or 401k or buying rental properties so that you might have an income when you no longer want to do anything. This is not an option. And we talked about living every opportunity with the kingdom in view, using every opportunity to bring glory to God. And if we understand our identity in Christ, and then we understand our rhythms, the things that we do day in and day out that God has ordained and given us to do, like things like eating, things like blessing, things like recreating, things like work and exercising dominion, when we live those things out with gospel intentionality, then we begin to do this very thing of living in light of the future that's coming. If we're going to be kingdom citizens when the future becomes the now, then we should live as kingdom citizens now because in a very real sense, the kingdom is here. And yet not fully, or not here. It is a reality, but yet it's not. The already not yet. We talked about living every opportunity last week. So now this week... I think Luke, of course Christ here through Luke, basically builds upon this idea of living with the future in view. And we add now the component of faith. And you say, what does faith have to do with living with the future in view? Faith has everything to do with living with the future in view. You cannot live with the future in view without faith. Question, how many of you have seen the future? Right? 
I don't see a DeLorean parked out there, you know? <laughs> Anybody watch that? Yeah, 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 okay. That's like old school, man, right? It's amazing, you know. <laughs> I don't like the country western one. That's kind of, okay, that's number three. Oh, that's just, that's, that's all kind of, <laughs> of course. <laughs> uh, if you've not seen it, it requires faith. There's a faith in the certainty of its becoming a reality. You don't know the future. You haven't been there. Neither have I. So if we're going to live with the future in view, we must live by faith that the future is real and that what God has promised will come to pass. See, you thought faith was just for the moment that you accepted Jesus Christ, right? It's by faith that we are saved, and not of ourselves, as a gift of God, you know, Romans, or Romans, or rather, Ephesians 2, like, all oh, faith is just for that. No, faith is for living. Because one day, there will come a, there will come a time or a moment when we will no longer need faith. We will be there, we will see it, we will experience it, we will live in it in it as in God. We will live in His presence. Our faith will become sight. For now, we live by faith. So let's read Luke chapter 17, verses 1 through 37. Let's go ahead and read the whole thing so we kind of get the big picture here. 1 through 37. This is Jesus. And He said to His disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come. But woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and plant in the sea and it would obey you. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in, in from the field, come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what, he was, what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. 
When he saw them, he said to them, go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice. And he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered, were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, or Jesus said to him, Rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, The kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, Look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And he said to the disciples, The days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, Look there, look here. Do not go out or follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you. In that night there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. And they said to him, Where, Lord? He said to them, Where the corpse is, there, where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Let's pray. Father, I ask your blessing this morning on your word. Um, Father, I pray that we would take care to hear your word, um, that we'd hear you clearly. And Father, we love you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. So, the future, that which we are supposed to live by, is something that you and I cannot see, touch, or feel. We just live by faith. You know, in salvation, along with having faith in the past work of Jesus Christ on the cross, we must also have faith in the future work of Jesus in His return and judgment that we see here, particularly at the verses 20 through 37. But in Luke 17, Jesus is going to be teaching His followers what it means to live a life of faith, to live a life by faith. And the first thing that we see think here is when dealing with sin, faith necessarily leads to rebuke and forgiveness. Now faith leads to multiple things, but we see here clearly that faith is going to involve, if we are living by faith with brothers and sisters in the faith, we are going to see rebuke and forgiveness. 
two things that are incredibly missing from the American church. This idea of rebuke and forgiveness, both, are either absent or very poorly or wrongly done. Let's read verse 1 through 4. And he said to his disciples, Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than he should cause one of the little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. So very first, very quickly, temptations. Temptations are a part of life. Now, there's no way to get away from temptations. Everywhere we turn, there is often temptations. Jesus' point here, though, is that temptations are going to come no matter what, but he warns that we not be the deliverer of temptations to those around us. That it would be better for you. I mean, think about Jesus' this picture here. It would be better for you to have this big stone tied around your neck and to be cast into the sea. Think about that picture. Then it would be for you to bring about the temptation to sin in someone else's life. We don't have time to tease that out right now. But I want you to think about this. Where can you, where do you tempt other people around you to sin? Maybe husbands. Maybe you don't lead in such a way that it tempts your wife to step up and lead. Maybe wives, you don't follow in such a way that it makes it easy for your husband to lead, so he is tempted to lead in an ungodly way. Kids, maybe you do not honor your parents, and so it tempts your parents to parent you in a way that is ungodly. There's many, many, many other applications to that. But are you bringing about the temptation to sin? Jesus says it's better off that a stone be tied around your neck and you be cast into the sea. How's that for encouragement? (laughs) Jesus says these things. The next thing we see is that rebuke should be a normal part of a follower's life. I don't think Jesus has in mind here the very rare occasions that a brother would need rebuke from sin. I don't think Jesus at this point is going, you know, once or twice in your lifetime, a brother may sin against you, and you may need to go rebuke him. Because then what comes in the context? He says, if he sins against you seven times in a, what? In a lifetime? In a day. If he sins against you seven times in a day, Jesus has in mind that rebuke is a regular, and forgiveness is a regular part of a believer's life. We are immersed in a culture that cannot cannot stand to be told that they're wrong. Everyone's right, right? 
everyone's right. Everyone's, you know, this view's right, that view's right. You know, if I say I'm, I mean, I mean think about it. Even our world, though, has lines. So if I'm 10 minutes late to work, but I don't think I'm 10 minutes late to work, you just think I'm 10 minutes late to work. Who's going to win that argument? The boss is, right? We got a drummer. All I need is an organ, and we'll be good to go. You know, uh, <laughs> um, sorry, brain. All right, back to the thing. We're immersed in a culture. That, uh, that does not like to be told they're wrong. Here's what's, what's interesting. Just like many other things, uh, like the way our government's set up, and, 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 and many, many th- we've imported that into the church. And the same thing is true in the church, that we cannot, be, we cannot stand to be told that we're wrong or that we have sinned, particularly here in this context. I mean, I hear things even in the church like, don't judge me. Or you don't know my life. Or you're not my boss. Or who are you to say what I'm doing is wrong? Anybody heard of these things? Even within the body? Of course, oftentimes what we do is when someone tells us that we're headed down the wrong path, or particularly that we are sinning, which is what this text is dealing with, is sin in need of repentance. And typically what we do is we just run from that. We go, well, this must not be the church for me. This must not be the place where I should be at. But here, Jesus clearly says to rebuke a brother when he is in sin. Now, you really can't justify this away. Jesus says it as plain as black and white or red and white, depending on the color of text in your Bible. It's just as plain as that. Now for us who are like, think like me and everything is like black and white, this is like really, really, really black and white, you know? For those of you who think like everything's gray, this is black and white, okay? It's very clear. Jesus is not saying, well, you know, if you feel like it or if it's convenient for you or if it really, really, really offended you, or if it's a really bad sin, then go rebuke him. He says, if he's in sin, rebuke him. Now, I must say at this point, now to rebuke well, it must be done in love, humility, and graciousness. I mean, clearly Jesus does not say this, but at this point, but we can tell from other passages, particularly like the checking the log in your own eye passage that, that there's a level of love and humility and um, mutual sanctification that often takes place in rebuke. A mutual sanctification, meaning God is sanctifying me as I am preparing to lead and help in sanctification of my brother or my sister. But it must be done in love and humility and graciousness. If you find yourself enjoying rebuking, um, stop. <laughs> Go back home. Don't do it. Um, there's probably some self-righteousness in there. Probably some pride. Uh, it's probably your own agenda. Uh, multiple things probably wrong with that picture. But to rebuke well, it must be done in love, humility, graciousness, prayerfulness. I mean, all those things. There's... Also things that should guide our humility and 
And one of those things that Jesus says very poignantly, uh, pointedly uh, in, the, in the passage uh, on checking the log in your own eye is that there should be some sanctification that's going to take place here. And if you find yourself addressing other people all the time and there's not sanctification going on inside of here, then there's something wrong with that picture. Something wrong. The other thing I would say to this that, again, not found right in the Scripture, but an implication of is that you must also be prepared and welcoming of rebuke in your life. How do you think about that? Do you welcome rebuke into your life? I'd say that's definitely a place where I struggle. Like, I'm not going like, hey, you know, if you see sin in my life, man, come bring it on me. You know, just lay it on, right? No, it's like, make sure you know I'm sinning before you come to me, right? Uh, No, like, do you welcome it? Are you open to it yourself? Many people like to dish it out, but honestly can't take it. So rebuke. You know, I want to encourage us, we should be a church culture that rebuke happens regularly. And if, we, if Jesus is right and that we're going to sin multiple times a day, then maybe it should come multiple times daily. So I think in light of this, we may set up a team called a rebuke team. And they're just going to go around and rebuke everybody when the time comes, right? Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> hey, this person, hey, yeah. Brother Brian, this person needs rebuked. Go take care of him. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> let, me, let me paint a picture for you. Imagine. Ima- I, typically what I've seen in churches is oftentimes the pastor or pastors are the ones that typically do the most rebuke. And that's incredibly unfortunate. Not because it makes the pastor look like a bad person. But because that's one person that is spurring people onto righteousness for however large the body is, when there should be, if the body's 30 people, there should be 30 people spurring 30 people on to righteousness. That's a whole lot more than just one person can do. And we sin a whole lot more than even a small group of elders can ever encourage the body in. So, let's talk about forgiveness. Forgiveness. We're also immersed in a culture that hoards forgiveness or demands it when it's not proper or fitting. For example, for example, Christians are very quick to ask for forgiveness but they tend to be incredibly slow at granting it. Just an observation I've made, having been in the church for most, you know, all my life. We are some. We are the mo- We are the people who have been forgiven of the most. Yet we oftentimes are the most unforgiving people. It would not be hard to find a church that had a split or some big disruption, disunity, and it all comes down to someone sinned, someone repented, and no one granted forgiveness. would not be hard to find that. 
I would guarantee you that within a five to ten minute drive of this location, you could find probably more than one or two of those. That sometime in the past few decades, this has happened. My prayer is that it doesn't happen here. And we would not be that kind of people. Who do you need to forgive? Just ask it right from the very beginning. Is there someone in your life that needs your forgiveness? Right now. If if the name comes to mind, write it down. Who do you need to forgive? Another example, Christians are also quick sometimes to give forgiveness when it's not proper. I think this is a this is a rough one. Jesus here says, I mean, get your Bible, I want you to look at it, okay? Look at verse 3. So we make sure we see this in black and white, okay? Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he kind of moves on and stops talking to you, and you can somehow get over it in your heart, forgive him? Is that what it says? No. No. What's it say? It says, if he repents, forgive him. Let me ask you, when it comes to forgiveness from Almighty God for our salvation, does God just kind of, uh, yeah, I think I can get over this one. He's good to go. Here's your forgiveness. What is required, at least in part, for our salvation? It's repentance. If we're going to live in light of the character of God, why would for us it be any different? God's got one standard, we have a different standard. No, that's the point. It is His standard, and we live by His standard. And Jesus says here, if He repents, forgive Him. There's nothing here about forgiving people who do not repent so that you can move on with your life. That's not what Jesus says here. If He repents... Forgive him. Now I know often what we're motivated by when we give forgiveness that's not proper is we're motivated by a heart that wants to move on. Like a heart that's been harmed. That wants to move. Maybe you were betrayed. Or someone offended you. And what we want, we just want our heart to heal so that we can move on with life. So I think what's happened is we've created a category of forgiveness. Where in reality, it's just simply this category of forgiveness allows us to be disobedient when it comes to rebuking and repentance. So if I can somehow get over this in my heart, I can move on with life and not have to actually confront the sin. And then what happens in that? You're just going to turn into a bitter old man or woman towards that person. And that's sin as well. The other thing that's going to happen, so your sanctification is going to be stalled, and their sanctification is going to miss out as well. So because, this might hurt, you don't love God and that person enough to go to them, you simply want to forgive and move on. And I think that that's incredibly dangerous. It's not a picture of the gospel. Now here's the deal. I think there's some legitimacy to being able to move on in life when proper forgiveness is not possible. Like, 
we, uh, this is, and this might just be me, honestly, being very particular about articulation and the words we use. Because I think there is some legitimacy that if that person does not repent, like, that our life can move on, but not move on in the sense that we forgive and wipe out what they did as wrong. Maybe they won't repent. So we don't forgive, but then how does our heart, how do we understand moving on with life, but yet still desiring repentance and, and the granting of forgiveness for that person? How do we move on? How does our heart, how do we move on with life, but still having a godly perspective on them needing to repent and you desiring to give them forgiveness upon their repentance? I think most often, when something like that, that sin and repentance and wanting to give the forgiveness has, is bothering you so much that you cannot move on and you're consumed by it, let me propose that maybe you are sinning and that the very need for that person to do that has become an ultimate to you. And there's not something you trust God with. Maybe in that moment you can't let that go because that is so important to you that the rest of life and, and following God and the joy in God has become so like, bismal compared to your desire for that. And I'm not saying that the desire for that person to repent, for that person to, to, to give forgiveness is wrong. No, no, no. I think that's a good desire. But when that desire becomes something that controls you, then now you've entered into sin yourself that that is more valuable than the rest of life that God has called you to. I mean, for some of us, we have pain in our lives and in the past that we don't need to forgive unless there's been repentance. But we need to realize that it's become an idol to us. That we've worshiping that. It's controlling our lives. You've become a slave to that instead of a slave to God. So forgive, no, not unless repentance, but remembering where that comes at in your order of devotion and commitment to is not at the top to the point where it is now controlling your life. I think you'll find also that when that is no longer your ultimate, that person's repentance that, and then granting forgiveness to that person, when you realize that that is not your ultimate, then it may allow you to seek and pursue that person. Now, no longer from your selfish need to fulfill and satisfy your idol, but because you understand and you trust God, and you understand that His offense or her offense is ultimately towards God and not towards you, now you can begin to approach that person, pray for that person, engage that person in such a way that it reflects God's character, that it reflects God's love to that person. Not saying it's guaranteed, but I wonder what would happen if you did pursue that person instead of out of the need to fulfill your idol you're pursuing that person out of a need to help them get right with God. Hmm. I wonder what would happen. What if you prayed for that person, not for your advantage in the situation, but for the glory of God in the situation? I think forgiveness, I think we have to be very careful. 
Jesus says if he repents, then forgive. Now understand we're talking, or Jesus is talking here about sin, not someone who has a haircut that you don't like or doesn't dress the way you wish they would. Now, if it's unmodesty, okay. But we're talking about sin. Oftentimes we avoid this rebuke and forgiveness because we don't understand the seriousness of sin, let alone the seriousness of our own sin. I think that's the thing here. Why are we granting forgiveness for sin that's not been repented of? Does that represent God? It does not. Now, this does not mean you can't be gracious to that person. You can't be kind to that person. It doesn't mean you ignore them or give them the silent treatment. No, no, no. How does God treat us when we're in sin? He is gracious to us. He is kind, yet firm. He pursues. He goes after us when we're in sin. I think oftentimes we, we avoid this because we don't understand what's at stake. We don't understand that the sin that's going on in that person's life, what's at stake. Now, sure, there's lots of very momentary consequences for that person in this life. But what if that person, what if that's indicative that that person was never saved and is on a trajectory to hell? Just because they signed a church role or a covenant or walked an aisle or said a prayer doesn't mean that their faith is genuine or real. What if you might be the instrument in that person's life to help them realize that they never were a follower of Christ? Or if you might be the instrument in that person's life to help them persevere in their faith? Maybe we have so many Christians that fall away from the faith. And of course, ultimately, I I would say I don't think they were ever followers. But what if their perseverance could have been spurred on by Christians who loved God enough and loved them enough to go after them. What if? What if there was a church that was like that? What if churches were like that? Jesus says, upon repentance, forgive. Now, I think what probably strikes the disciples at this point is Jesus' command to forgive over and over and over and over and over again. The only way you will ever to be able to lovingly forgive is to know your own need for the gospel and the forgiveness granted therein and the continual forgiveness granted to us as we continue to sin even though we are followers of Christ. So, see the balance here. Repentance, proper forgiveness. And you know what? If he continues to sin, but there is genuine repentance, like we forgive and we forgive and we forgive and we forgive. Are you prepared to do that? Someone has sinned against you seven times today. Are you prepared to forgive them after the first one? After the second one? Oh, it's getting a little harder. Third one. It's getting a little harder. Fourth one. Are you prepared to do that? And I would argue, and I think the Bible's point, we can do that when we understand our identity in Christ and the forgiveness granted therein. Show me someone who cannot forgive, and I'll show you someone who doesn't know or doesn't believe the forgiveness that's been granted to them. 
to if you're not a Christian. Let me hope you understand the seriousness of your sin in light of God. And apart from God's forgiveness, you will bear the payment of that sin forever. The wrath due for that sin forever. But with true repentance and faith comes the most awesome forgiveness anyone could ever experience. If you are a Christian, Jesus speaks of the seriousness of our sins. Even the fact that we have influence on temptation and the sinning of others. This is a great thing, that a great power that we have. Guys, we don't experience joy in the gospel when we ignore our sins and the sins of others. We experience joy in the gospel when we experience the forgiveness, forgiveness of those sins. Because that's what the gospel is. It's the forgiveness of our sins. That's where we experience joy. It's not, it's not from covering up the sins. Like, it's not from God going, well, I'm just going to turn a blind eye to this dude because I really want him on my team. That's not. It's the joy of the, the beauty of the forgiveness that someone could do something wrong against an infinitely holy God and that person could be forgiven. That's where joy in part comes from. So if you're a Christian, next is, this is why we covenant with one another as a church. To help us watch over one another in our lives, in our doctrine, our beliefs, our practices. So our orthodoxy, our orthopraxy, that's our, that's our beliefs and that's our practices. Orthodoxy, orthopraxy, this is it's to help each other, to watch over each other. This is not just a concern for the elders. This is not just a concern for those in leadership to rebuke and grant forgiveness and those things. This is a concern for all of us. Man, I, I pray, and Rusty and I pray that our body would develop a culture of rebuke and forgiveness, that this is just commonplace. You know, that you can be rebuked because, you know what, your identity is in Christ. You don't have to prove yourself. You don't have to defend yourself. Your identity is in Jesus. You've been forgiven, and you're just trying to follow Jesus the best you can. So this rebuke is just like a, uh, a road sign, if you will. Turn left here. Stop heading down that path. This is sin. Make a shift. I don't want to make light of that sin. But, now humility, again, let me remind us, is incredibly important in that culture. We must pray that God would give us humility. We must have rebuke as a part of the loving fellowship between saved sinners. Rebuke and forgiveness is not a regular, proper forgiveness is not a regular part of of your fellowship with believers, then you don't have fellowship. What you have is worldly acquaintances. As a church and individuals, we are to show our faith in God by the way we deal with sin. Now, how would you deal with sin like this, unless you are trusting God and believing in Him. This requires faith. Requires faith. Next thing we see in this passage is that genuine faith leads to obedience. Genuine faith leads to obedience. Let's read verse 5 through 10. 
The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. Understand the context, what Jesus just commanded them to do, and this is their response. Increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like the grain of a mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Then he says, will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he comes in from the field, come at once and recline at the table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what he was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you've commanded, all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. All right, so to the beginning of that, so clearly the disciples understand that the demand to rebuke and forgive is something that they need help with. So Jesus' command, his standard here, is something they need help with. They recognize that they need faith, particularly, because they say, Lord, increase our faith. We need this in order to do what you've commanded us to do. They also recognize, in this passage, you see, that it is God, or particularly here, that it is Christ, who grants faith. So they recognize their need for faith. They recognize that faith is not something they muster up or something that they read a book to help them with. It's something that God grants. This also helps us understand that if we are to work out our salvation, then we must ask God to increase our faith as we go. If we are going to follow Jesus, we must beg, request, petition God to increase our faith. So let's talk about the story of the mulberry tree. All right, so these trees were known for their like, huge root systems and the difficulty of moving them. So Jesus didn't look at this little like sapling. You know, you know what a sapling is? If you hunt, you know what a sapling is. It's like a little tree, a little teeny tiny tree. Like deer like to eat those and you know anyways like it wasn't Jesus like you know if you had faith you can move this dandelion right you could do it I promise you could do it and then you go and it goes goes. no like this is a tree that would to them would be like oh my gosh like that's crazy you can move that Jesus uses the tree here to talk about faith and obedience. So look at verse 5. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. So the object of their faith is Jesus Christ, right? I mean, we know this from the context, from the Bible, that the object of their faith, their faith is in Jesus Christ. They recognize that their, that faith has to do with Jesus. They also know that faith comes from Jesus. I already just said this a few moments ago. But then verse 6. And the Lord said, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. So Jesus now talks about the nature of faith. I'm convinced not the amount of faith, but the nature of that faith. Heard a preacher say one time, well, if you just had enough faith, your loved one would have not died. Hmm. 
I'm convinced here Jesus is talking about the nature rather than the amount of faith. Jesus says that the nature of faith is that even if it's as small, even if it's as tiny, even if it's like the size of a grain of a mustard seed, if it's there, you can move this tree. Why do you think Jesus uses the grain of a mustard seed? I think if he was talking about amount, like if you just have enough, then he would say something like, if you have as much faith as there is sand on the seashore, then you could move this tree. No, he says, if you have faith that's this big, the nature of that faith that's that big is that it can move this tree. Think about that. Think about that in your own life. Do you spend your whole life going, I've got to have all this faith, and, and then I can wheel, you know, get God to do what I want Him to do? And No. God, give me faith. Just give me a little bit of faith to follow you, to believe in you, to live in light of the future. And Father, I know that if I just have that much faith, Father, I can bring you glory in my life. And Father, I know that, that just that much faith has to be granted by you. <clears throat> he goes on in verse 7. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him, and, 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 and I'm going to stop reading at this point, but, but basically he's done what he's, do, what he's done, and at the end of the day, we, the servant here, simply says, I'm an unworthy servant. I've only done what is my duty. Jesus is teaching his followers that they are servants taking commands from their master. That we are servants of God simply taking commands from our master. We, get this guys, we have no right to say, well God, I have done this, this, and this. Give me this. We have no right. Jesus says the only right that you have is to say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what is our duty. We don't get to stack up the cards so that we can make God do what we want Him to do. We get to say, God, thank you for letting me serve you. Thank you for giving me the faith and the repentance so that I could follow you. So a follower, so in the context here of rebuke and forgiveness, we need to understand Jesus is saying that his commands on this require our obedience. And a follower's obedience shows their faith in God. A servant, a follower's obedience shows their faith in God. Guys, understand that the disciples here have not been following Jesus for 60 years. Right? They've been following him for a couple years. These commands are for all of us forgiveness, rebuke, humility, being servants, faith. These are not options. These are. For all of us. 
Now, if you're not a follower of Christ, do you understand what it means to have a sense of duty? Maybe working to care for your family, maybe duty you have to your employer. The question is, why do you have this sense of duty? Why? For what promises do you fulfill this duty? A paycheck? Those promises come true? If you're a follower of Jesus, you should live with obedience because you have faith in the future work of Jesus to return and restore. We live in light of His promises that He will come. Here's the problem. If you are obedient for the wrong reasons, then it won't last. And God doesn't get the glory for that. For example, let me ask you this. Why do you serve? Whether that's a church, it's a neighbor, someone else in the body. You know, a real quick test to tell if you're doing it for the right reasons is wait until someone treats you like a servant. Wait till someone doesn't say thank you. Wait till someone doesn't recognize what you're doing. Or someone does ask you to give more when you're already serving. Now, obedience born out of faith in God must be built up by the study of the Word. And I want to remind us, guys, that particularly on the servant side of things, like we are servants of God. And you've heard me ask this question, what more do you want? You get to serve the Almighty God who created this universe. What more could you want? Now this obedience, again, that's born out of faith, is built up in the study of the Word. Knowing the Word will help you know what God expects in His obedience for our lives. We also need to remember that God is calling us, that what God is calling us to should ultimately drive us to the pleading for increased faith. You guys hear me. If you're able to do what you do in this life without faith, then I would argue that you're not doing the will of God. You're doing your will. Faithless actions are atheistic. Are you living by faith? You do what you do, believing in the future work of Jesus Christ. Believing in His current work. Pray for faith. I'd ask you, you know, maybe you need to rebuke someone. Maybe you need to forgive someone. These things should require faith. As a church, we want to foster a culture where we're shepherding each other's hearts, where we're bringing about rebuke and forgiveness. We're being used, as Paul Tripp talked about this parenting conference this past week, we're used as brushstrokes in each other's lives to paint a beautiful picture. This should be us. So, true faith in God shows itself in obedience. Next one, faith is necessary for salvation. Faith is necessary for salvation. On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along, it's verse 11, passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered the village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. 
Now he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered, Were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return to give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, Rise and go on your way. Your faith has made you well. So here, Jesus associates faith with salvation. Here, Jesus cleanses these lepers of their sickness. I mean, think about these lepers. These were outcasts. I mean, these were not seen as, as people that were, well, they were sick and they just kind of hung around with everybody. No, they were outcasts. They were not welcome into the community of, unless there were other lepers. So this example here of the faith that Christ has is an extraordinary example of the same faith that he just talked about concerning the mulberry tree. So you see, Jesus now exemplifies the very faith that he spoke of in moving the mulberry tree. Jesus shows them. This is a miracle of moving the tree in real life. Another note to make is that the one who came back to Jesus, the one with faith here, was a Gentile. I mean, he goes to great lengths. He calls him a Samaritan, and then he later calls him a foreigner. Jesus, Jesus is very particular about pointing out that this was not a Jew. This is not a likely person to exercise faith in Christ. And then Jesus connects this faith to salvation. Look at verse 19. And he said to him, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. I think it can be a little confusing here, but the word for well there actually means saved. Your faith has made you saved. It's faith. Your faith has made you well. A couple things to note. We see God's mercy here extending beyond the Jews. We see Jesus granting salvation here to someone who's not a Jew. See Jesus, again, carrying out His plan for the nations. Notice that the others, the other nine, ignored their blessing, but this Gentile returned. Now, Jesus doesn't clearly say that the other nine were Jews, although I don't think that that's a, that's a big leap in speculation in the text. I think there's a good chance the other nine were Jews, but this Gentile returned. The Gentile came back. This foreigner came back. The others ignored the blessing, but this one returned. And this one was saved. Now, I don't, I don't know. I don't know if the other nine were saved or simply healed of their physical infirmities. But we know that this one here was saved. This was clear. He came back. He recognized who it was that saved him. So much so that it drove him to return to give thanks and praise to God. Notice, notice back there, the one, verse 15, the one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising who? Praising God with a loud voice and fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving thanks. I think part of what's going on here is Jesus is saying, 
yes, I've been healing people, and these ten came to me for salvation, or came to me to be healed. They were healed. This one returns, praises God, recognizing who Jesus is. I think this leper recognized Jesus as the Son of God, ultimately. That this was a work of God, not just a work of some man who could happen to be able to heal lepers. It was faith in Christ that brought this salvation to this leper. Notice it's not the works of the leper. Jesus did not say that it was the works that have saved him. Jesus does not say, since you've taken the first step, now you have been saved. Anybody hear that growing up right? you know, in church? Uh, well, if you just take the first step, God will take you the rest of the way. Jesus says it's his faith. And then early on in this passage, we see Jesus not argue with the disciples when they recognize that they need faith and it comes from God. So even that faith to come back to Christ to be healed was a gift of God. Now, if you're not a Christian, um, understand how serious our sin is. It's more serious than this leprosy. And the leprosy that is cleansed here is real, but is ultimately symbolic of the sin stains that you must be cleansed of. By faith in Christ, you can be made well. If you are a Christian, I wonder how many times God has been kind to you this week and you've never returned to Him. How many times has God been gracious to you? Why do we tend to be so lacking in gratuity? Maybe you lack gratuity. Maybe we lack gratuity to God because we take so little time to consider our sin. Ask God. Let me me encourage you this week. Ask God to help you clearly see the reality of your sin. Then ask Him to help you clearly see the reality of the gospel and the forgiveness granted therein. You will not be able to help, if that's done, to respond with anything less than gratuity. As a follower of Jesus, you absolutely must take time to reflect on the truth about who you are and the truth about who God is. We also encourage you, in the light of talking about this in the context of a body, you must be willing to place yourself in the position to be known by others. We're talking about sin and rebuke here. About living this life of obedience, of faith, and this this life of salvation that is brought about by faith. We need the local church, we need a body to help us with that. We need other people to help us know God and know ourselves. We all, or let me back up, most of us probably think more highly of ourselves than we probably should. We've, we've bought into this, I need to esteem myself. No, we need to esteem God. And because God loves us, because we were created by God, we have value in that. We were created to esteem God, to think highly of Him, and then to know ourself as God knows us. And we need others to help us with that. So, the last thing here is that followers of Jesus live with a faith in the promises of God concerning the future. 
I'm not going to take the time to read these 17 verses, but Jesus is talking about the coming kingdom here. The future concerning his return is imminent. The day is coming. But Jesus says that the kingdom is also already here. That the kingdom, he says, is amidst you. That's interesting. Some people take that to understand it that Jesus is saying that the kingdom is like in them. I don't think that that's what Jesus is saying. I think he's saying that it's among you. I think what he's saying is, you blind people, it's me. I'm here. I am the kingdom of God. And I am here. He is standing right here. And by faith, you can know the kingdom is coming. And by faith, you can perceive its presence already. But there is coming a day when faith will no longer be necessary to see the kingdom. Jesus foretells that he will die and that he must be rejected in verse 20 through 25. And then in 26 he says, Then Jesus says that once this is finished, the Son of Man will come so suddenly it will be a surprise to all. Understand, this is how God's judgments come. Just look through history in the Bible. God's judgments come quickly, swiftly, and by surprise. You say, well, give us a warning. Like, give us a warning. Let us know. Like, it's coming in two days. God's judgment's coming so that we can be ready. No, the warnings are already there. It can happen at any time. Be ready. We've had 2,000 years worth of warning to be ready. So Jesus com- demands that we prepare, commands that we prepare for judgment now. When judgment comes, faith will have ran its course. The opportunity to live by faith in Jesus is done because we will be present. And no faith will be needed. We'll be there. The rule and reign of God will be established. And Jesus says that the kingdom will be so obvious. It'll be so obvious that it's there. Now part of Jesus' point here in this passage, I think, is to describe the disastrous feel that this coming kingdom will have to those who have not lived by faith. That's going to be a rough day. Like, not like I had a bad day at work, but as in the beginning, and sorry, rather, the continuation of the path of destruction that those who have not lived by faith, that path of destruction that they're on, will continue on for all of eternity. The only difference now is that there's no chance to get out of it. Christians, we should be rejoicing at the coming of this kingdom, right? This kingdom that Jesus speaks about here, we should rejoice that He came and that He's coming back, that our God will be King and that He will reign and rule over this earth, that we will no longer have to live by faith, but we will live by sight. My Christians, do you rejoice at that? Does that get your blood pumping? If you're a good Baptist, probably not. You probably sit there like, oh, yeah. Like, God, like, this is what's coming. Like, we can be a little Pentecostal about this. You know what I'm saying? Let me ask you this. Verse 33 says, Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. How are you doing with this verse? How are you doing with this verse? How are you doing in sacrificing for Christ today? Are you just going through life aimlessly? Are you just living life for a paycheck and some fun? Are you storing up money so that you can enjoy those infinitely momentary years at the end of your life on this earth? 
Remember Lot's wife. She tried to look back. She tried to keep her life, and what happened? She lost it. Some of you, like Lot's wife, are right on the edge of experiencing life with Christ like you never have before, and if you don't give yourself to Him, then you will lose your life for all of eternity. Some of you are right on the edge. Lot's wife was right on the edge of deliverance, and she turned around and looked back. She wanted to keep her life. What she had back there, she wanted to save. Some of you are like looking back, you're like, man, I, I, I want to keep that. That's awesome. What I got going on there, look, look, you're a fool. We are a foolish when we look back and say we want to keep that. When we look ahead and live in light of what's coming in the future, to turn that down for that, my gosh, you've got mud on your eyes. Satan has blinded you. Someone wake you up. That's what we have coming. Some of you know just enough about following Christ that you're more lost than anything else on this earth. That you know how to look Christian. You know how to act Christian. But your heart is so far from the gospel. That's the same thing as being lost. So, I guess we must conclude before we run out of time here. Jesus predicts here the coming kingdom as well as the present reality of His kingdom. He says it can only be seen by faith. It's now, it's only now that we get to live in light of the future faith. He says we don't walk blindly, but we walk by faith. God has given us guidance. Guys, this is His kindness to us now that we would have guidance to live this way, to rebuke, to repent, to forgive. These are marks of a follower who's walking by faith. And faith is a necessary, necessarily results in obedience. Guys, if obedience to God is a problem for you, then ultimately it's a faith problem. Do you really believe the things of God? If you have a faith problem, then maybe you have a salvation problem. I'm not saying just because you don't live perfectly that you're lost. That's not, not the point. For those whose hearts beat to follow Jesus, let me encourage you this. Enjoy His grace. Enjoy it. Beg Him to increase your faith and live by this faith, trusting in the fact that He will return one day. His kingdom will be obvious for all to see. That's what He tells us here. And we will be welcomed in, think about this, Christians, we will be welcomed in, as a, in to the kingdom as sons and daughters because of our identity and the one who lived by faith perfectly. Let's not forget that. I'm going to pray for us and we'll continue on with worship and communion here this morning. So let's pray. Father, thank you for your graciousness to us this morning. Father, I know hey, that your word is, is grand and it's beautiful. And Father, I just, I just thank you for revealing yourself to us. Father, it's hard to live by faith. Father, we want to live by sight. We want to live by touch. We want to live by feel. He's not called us to live by those things. He's called us to live by faith. All those other things are valid and touch and feel and see. And Father, you've even given us some tangible expressions of the coming kingdom and different things like that in this life. But, Father, it can only be perceived in this life with faith. Father, some of us need to pray about faith for obedience. Uh, some of us need to be, pray about faith and how that relates to our salvation. Some of us need to pray about faith and 
the context of rebuking and giving forgiveness. And, and Father, I know we covered so many different things today, but Father, um, I just pray that you would help us to work out the implications and applications of the text for our life this week. Even in these next moments, as we, as we participate in communion, as we sing together, uh, Father, that we would not just offer up words, but that we would take time to reflect on the text, even in these very moments. Father, let us not be so quick to move on to something else or to another agenda or to our agenda, but Father, let us be quick to be still and to listen, to ask you to reveal to us where your word might speak to our lives specifically. Father, I just pray for this time. I pray that you'd be honored by what goes on in the hearts and the words that come out. Father, I love you. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Would you all stand with us?